On the morning of May 5, 2009, Christopher Coleman returned home from the gym to a scene of chaos and unimaginable horror. Join me as we uncover the tragic and bewildering story of a devoted family torn apart by an unthinkable tragedy. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'd like to thank Patreon Vicky for suggesting this case. It's a doozy. On the morning of May 4, 2009, Detective Sergeant Justin Barlow from the Columbia Police Department heard his phone ring. It was 6.42 in the morning, but the phone call didn't wake him up. He'd been awake for hours, trying to rock his six-month-old baby back to sleep. The person on the line was Chris Coleman, his neighbor. They weren't really friends. In fact, they barely knew each other. But Chris had spoken with Sergeant Barlow a few months earlier because Chris had been receiving threatening letters in the mail. He needed advice on what to do about the matter. The threats continued, and in recent weeks Sergeant Barlow offered to place a video camera inside his house and point it towards Chris Coleman's house, for which Chris was grateful. It was these threats that concerned Chris when his wife didn't answer his early morning calls or texts. Chris said, My wife's not answering the phone. I need you to check on her and the kids. I'm on the JB Bridge and I'll be there in about five minutes. There was enough stress in Chris's voice that Sergeant Barlow threw on his clothes and called his dispatcher at the Columbia Police Department. He grabbed his gun, his cuffs, and a radio, and within minutes he was on the Coleman's front porch. As he walked up to the door, a second officer arrived. They knocked on the door together, but no one answered. The second officer, Officer Don John, headed toward the back door, and a minute later, Sergeant Barlow's radio crackled. You better come back here. There's a window open, and the screen's been knocked out. The two men radioed for backup, and then climbed into the basement window. They cleared the basement, making sure it was safe, before moving upwards through the house. As they mounted the stairs, Officer Donjon went first because he was in uniform. They noticed the house smelled. It wasn't a normal house smell. It was paint fumes they were smelling. When they reached the first floor, they saw writing sprayed in a blood-red spray paint and covering the kitchen wall. There's one word there, the word punished. As they cleared the kitchen and moved throughout the house, they could see that more walls were spray-painted. One said, I'm always watching, and another beside the stairwell said, You have paid. At 6.56 a.m., 13 minutes after Chris first called from the Jefferson Barracks Bridge, he pulled into the driveway, just as a third officer pulled up. He told Chris to wait outside. Inside, Officer Donjon made his way up to the set of stairs that led to a second level. Based on what they were seeing, they knew that whatever was upstairs wasn't going to be good. The men walked up, single file. One officer entered the master bedroom. Another walked into a child's bedroom. It was a little boy's room. Lots of blue and plenty of boy toys. In the bed, a little boy lay half-covered by his blankets and appeared to be sleeping except that his skin looked dull and was a gray-blue color. His arms and legs were stiff. He'd been dead for a while. In a second bedroom, another little boy's room, another body is found. His bed was painted with spray and the words, I hate you. In the master bedroom, their dead mother is found lying in her bed along with the words, You have paid. The officers were doing their best to keep their emotions in check, 
and stay focused so they can make the right decisions. One of the officers warns the other two as they walk down the stairs that Chris Coleman might be their guy. They needed to limit what they told him. The other officers nod in agreement, and they take a deep breath as they walk out the door. An officer walks up to Chris and says, They didn't make it, Chris. They didn't make it. In the yard, Chris didn't protest. He just fell to the ground and sobbed. In the course of time, he pulls out his phone and calls his father. Before long, the house is surrounded by caution tape, police officers, crime scene investigators, and the police chaplain. The Reverend repeats to Chris that his entire family has been killed, and he tries to provide comfort and calm. Police suggest that Chris sit in the back of an ambulance because the media are arriving, and they'll all want to catch a picture of the grieving father. Chris's own father, a reverend himself, arrives on the scene, and soon after, Chris's boss, Reverend Joyce Myers, is there too. It sounds like the beginning of a bad joke. Three reverends walk onto a crime scene, but no one is laughing. Chris is sitting in the ambulance in a haze, and when he looks down at his arm and notices some red marks on it, he says, How did that get there? Minutes later, he appears to become overwhelmed with grief and repeatedly bangs his fists on the gurney. Sergeant Barlow, who had started this day with his beautiful baby in his arms, was now in charge of solving the murder of two little boys and their mother, little boys that Chris Coleman would never get to hold in his arms again. The sergeant wanted the best of the best to be part of the investigation. Chief Joe Edwards of the Columbia Police Department soon had officers arriving from all over the metro area. Some would coordinate the area, canvass the neighbors, and others would handle the media. Sergeant Barlow and another detective would interview Chris. They take him to a dull gray and white interrogation room. It appeared cold and sterile. Chris, who was wearing a t-shirt with sleeves cut off and gym shorts, complained that he was cold. The detectives left him alone to get a blanket, during which time Chris put his head down and sobbed. It takes him a minute to gather himself, and shortly after, the detectives return with a blanket so he can wrap himself up. He covers his arms, and the interview proceeds. The detectives began by asking a few questions about Chris's time in the military. He's compliant, answering the questions readily. If anything, Chris seems disoriented and quiet. And this seemed surprising for someone whose job was to protect and take charge. Chris was a former Marine, whose current job was as a bodyguard for Joyce Myers. We'll come back to her in a little while. The officers asked Chris about his morning. Why wasn't he home? He says he got up at 5.30, went to the bathroom, got dressed, and left for the gym. As he drove away, he called Sherry to wake her up and get her day going, but she didn't answer. He went to the gym, did his workout, and sent Sherry a text or two with no response. He had called her on the way home, too, but once again she didn't answer. He was getting worried now, because she and the kids should have been up. That's when he called Sergeant Barlow. They asked if he'd noticed anything strange that morning, but he didn't, except for the fact that as he was backing out of his driveway, he saw a dark-colored car pass behind him. The investigators continued to ask him questions, moving back in time to the previous day. Chris said he was home with the family the day before. He ran some errands, picked up the kids from school. He played catch with 11-year-old Garrett while he was waiting for his wife to get home. She got off work at 4, 
When she arrived home, they made dinner. They had pasta and chicken and leftover pizza. Then they all walked to a nearby snow cone stand for dessert. After eating, Chris played catch with Gavin, his nine-year-old, before he went to the gym. When he came back, he helped put the kids to bed. Sherry put a steroid cream on Gavin's poison ivy, while Chris listened to Garrett's prayers. After that, he and Sherry watched TV together, and she fell asleep in his arms on the couch. Sergeant Barlow had made a note of the red marks and scratches on Chris's arm, and he asked them about them. Chris said, I think it was when I was the gurney in the ambulance. I was hitting the pillow. Sergeant Barlow made a note of Chris's response and noted that Chris appeared to be trying to cover his arms up. Tuck then turned to threatening emails and letters that Chris and his family had been receiving. They began arriving in November of 2008. It started with an email, and in it were the words, I have warned you to stop your lies. You've continued to lie and manipulate others. The time for warnings has passed. You will now reap the consequences of your actions. It seemed like Chris was being targeted, but he wasn't the only one. The letter also threatened his boss and her ministry. Chris called the police, who agreed to provide extra patrols past the Coleman residence. On January 2, 2009, another threatening letter was placed in the Coleman's mailbox. It started with, Fuck you. Deny your God publicly, or else no more opportunities. Time is running out for you and your family. Have a good time in India, motherfucker. In the letter, the word opportunities was misspelled. On April 27th, eight days before the murders, Chris found another threatening letter in his mailbox. It warned him to stop traveling and stop carrying on with this fake religious life of stealing people's money. It ended with, This is your last warning. Your worst nightmare is about to happen. Police had canvassed the area, and since the letter seemed to be more threatening, a surveillance camera was installed at Officer Barlow's house. It would point towards the Coleman's mailbox. Unfortunately, it didn't record anything useful. Chris was a preacher's kid. Both his parents were pastors, and hundreds of Christians from his neighboring towns would fill their non-denominational church each week. They welcomed all races, genders, and ages with open arms. Chris and his brother grew up speaking in tongues in front of a crowd. The family based their decisions on scripture and quoted the Bible often. Chris was described as the quietest and gentlest of his brothers. The Coleman boys were well-mannered children. According to a great article by Jeanette Cooperman for St. Louis Magazine, which I quoted often in this episode, his mother said, The worst curse Chris ever said in front of her was P-I-S-S. His high school coaches said they couldn't have asked for a better kid. He was a kind team player who rarely lost his temper. Once, he and his friends went out and had a few drinks while his parents were out of town, but he felt so guilty that he called his high school basketball coach and confessed. His father, who enjoyed hunting, knew better than to invite Chris along, because the first time they butchered a rabbit, Chris was beside himself. While in high school, a Marine recruiter spoke with Chris, who became obsessed with the idea of becoming a Marine. He signed up right after high school, and that's where he met his wife, Sherry. He was 22 and had piled up military certifications and honors. Sherry was 21, and she was a military police officer. They met when she and Chris were both studying at a canine training center in San Antonio. Three months later, Chris would return home to his parents' house with Sherry in tow. 
He introduced her as a friend who lived in Chicago and said he was going to take her home. His parents didn't pick up any romantic vibes, but they noticed that Sherry was a little worldly, a little girl with little short shorts, a tattoo on her leg, not the kind of person we thought he'd be with. Those are his father's words, not mine. Chris left that evening to drive Sherry home, but he didn't come back as expected. Instead, he called the next morning, and his first words were, Dad, you'll never believe what we did. We got married. Chris's parents didn't know how to react, so they were quiet. After a few moments, Chris said, Dad, you don't seem excited. But his parents needed time to comprehend what had just happened. He would later explain to his parents that he got caught up in the moment. It was an impulsive move. His parents told him he made a lifetime commitment, and they soon found out that Sherry was pregnant. At 21, Sherry was fun, uninhibited, and what some might call a wild child. Three months after meeting Chris, she was pregnant and married. Perhaps trying to impress Chris and his parents, she became a born-again Christian. Eleven years later, she would devote all her time to their two sons, their church and mission trips. She threw herself into work and volunteered at the Destiny Church where she and Chris worshipped. She organized fundraisers, church parties, and attended most of the church's holiday parties. She was generous with her children and her friends. One of her friends said that Sherry always made her laugh, and so she designated Sherry's ringtone to be Pocket Full of Sunshine by Natasha Bedingfield. Sherry's ringtone for Chris was Lucky by Jason Mraz, as in, I'm lucky I'm in love with my best friend. And she really did love him. She brought him gifts at work and told people what a great husband he was. Her only complaints were that he was out of town too much and didn't get to spend time with her and his kids. She wanted more affection. The Coleman family was beautiful. Chris was muscular and blonde with a shaved head to make him look tough. Sherry was lean and athletic. Her hair varied in color from a lighter brown to a darker brown, and her two boys were gorgeous, with curly blonde hair cut short. The family looked like they could be on a cover of a magazine. According to friends and family, Gavin was full of energy and more like his mom. He was animated and hilarious, while Garrett was more studious and quiet. Both boys were full of energy, but obedient and respectful, because Chris was firm with them. He saw them as a reflection on him, so he made sure they acted appropriately. But he also dropped whatever he was doing to throw football or play catch with the two boys who adored him. Sherry was by far the more physically affectionate of the couple. The boys would sit on her lap, lean their heads against her, hug and kiss her, but Chris was more standoffish. He was a more distant, disciplinarian, reserved, and collected. Sherry worked hard. She had a job and still managed to keep their house in tip-top shape, which I find to be impossible, and she still made time to regularly volunteer at her church. After the boys were born, using his marine and security experience, Chris landed a job with the Joyce Myers Ministry. Joyce was, and still is, a charismatic author, speaker, and president of her ministry. She started her television ministry in 1993 and did amazingly well. By 2003, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch would publish a four-part special report detailing her $10 million corporate jet, her husband's $100,000-plus Mercedes, her $2 million home, 
and several other homes worth another two million for her four children. That's just a little bit of Joyce Meyer's worth. She had plenty of money to spend, as did her head of security and bodyguard, Chris Coleman. He was making a comfortable $100,000 a year. But his job as head of security apparently put a target on his back. The first death threats he ever got said, tell Joyce to stop preaching the bullshit. If I can't get her, I'll get someone close to her. Just hours into the investigation, the Major case squad was pursuing their best lead, trying to find whoever wrote those threats. They tracked down people across the country who didn't like Joyce Myers and interviewed them to find out where they were on May 4th and May 5th. And while they were doing that, they were hoping that Chris might be able to point them in the right direction. When Chris was in the interrogation room, wrapping his arms in a blanket in order to stay warm or maybe hide those scratches, he was asked about Joyce Meyer, so he went on and on about her with high praise. He said she's on TV in 37 languages and three-fourths of the world. He then tells them about the security surveillance company he started called Executive Innovations, but he doesn't mention his own security camera, which might have recorded an intruder, until the detectives ask him about it. When they did, Chris said the recorder was missing. How convenient. Somehow, a killer snuck into the Coleman home and strangled Sherry, Garrett, and Gavin. The crime scene wasn't bloody, but it was gruesome, and for some reason, Chris Coleman's cameras didn't capture a thing. They didn't capture the fact that all three victims had been sleeping peacefully before someone strangled them to death in their beds. Technically, Sherry might not have been sleeping. On autopsy, it revealed she fought violently with her killer leaving her with two black eyes. Detective Barlow asked Chris who he suspected, but Chris replied, I don't have a clue. I should have been there this morning. As they continued to speak with him, they noted Chris's actions. When they asked him how he thought his family died, he said he didn't know because the officers didn't tell him. Well, the officers found it strange that he hadn't asked. They were also alarmed by his lack of reaction and the curiosity about what had happened. So the police kept probing. They asked if there were problems in his relationship, and Chris said no, not really, I mean just a communication thing. Chris and Sherry appeared to be a Ken and Barbie family. But we all know things aren't always as they seem. Chris's parents never quite accepted Sherry, and money was another point of tension. Chris liked to make money, and Sherry really liked to spend it and give it away. She shopped for nice things, planned mission trips, and bought food and blankets for the homeless. Then she'd drive around, passing them out. Chris thought that Sherry could get carried away. Chris was overheard by his neighbor, telling Sherry to chill out, you holy roller, followed by an off-handed comment that Sherry used to be so wild and crazy. Chris would complain to that same neighbor about his shotgun marriage and that he worked 80 to 90 hours a week protecting some millionaire lady that he didn't even like, while his wife got to sit at home in a big, beautiful house. In the summer of 2008, Chris would ask his neighbor how much money he made, and what would he do if his neighbor's wife put a thousand dollars on his credit card at the mall. Then Chris said, I'm making a hundred grand a year, and I've got to drive around in a clunker. He blamed Sherry for the fact that they were in over their heads in credit card debt. That summer, Chris was unhappy always talking about not wanting to be with Sherry, but not knowing what to do. 
He said if he got a divorce, he'd lose his job because anyone representing the ministry was a reflection on Joyce herself. This meant that the people who worked for her had to be pillars of the community. They had solid marriages and godly spirits. He felt like if they got a divorce, he would lose his job. But this wasn't necessarily true. Joyce and her ministry were not against divorces, but they were against adultery. While interrogating Chris, the police didn't know what I just shared with you, but they had a hunch that something was amiss. They asked him if he was seeing anyone else outside of his marriage. Chris replied no. But then he mentioned a woman named Tara from Florida, who he'd been talking to a lot lately. He clarified that she's just a friend, someone to talk to. Tara is Tara Lintz, a cocktail waitress and one of Sherry's best friends from high school. When asked for clarification as to whether their conversations would have been approved by Sherry, Chris said no, but he still insisted that he and Tara were just friends. He'd met her through Sherry when their family went on a vacation to Florida. The detective asked if the relationship had a potential to go further than just friends, but Chris said no, I don't want to do that to my kids. As soon as police heard the name Tara Lintz, they knew they had to check her out. So police from Tara's hometown of St. Petersburg, Florida, were contacted to check out Chris's story. They went to her home thinking it was going to be a quick 20-minute interview, but it ended up being something very different. And that's because the information they got from Tara about her and Chris's relationship was very different from what Chris was telling police in Illinois. Tara was able to provide phone and computer files relating to her and Chris's relationship. She had hundreds of photos of the two of them together. During the interview, she told officers that Chris had planned to serve divorce papers to Sherry on May 5, 2009. Yes, that's the exact day that Chris's family was murdered. Not only that, but six weeks later, the two of them had plans to go on a Caribbean cruise together. And if that wasn't enough, the couple had planned a tentative wedding date of January in 2010. She'd been looking at engagement rings, registering at wedding registration websites, and even looking for homes in the St. Louis area for the both of them to live after they were married. They'd even picked out a baby name together. Tara, who looks very much like Sherry, would tell police that they were best friends in high school and stayed in touch afterwards. She'd known Chris for a long time, but their relationship became more than friends in November 2008 when she saw him at a Joyce Myers conference. Sherry, a former wild child turned church mother, hoped to be a godly influence on her high school best friend. She had called Tara and told her to go to the conference, which was taking place in Florida. Tara went, and she became more than friends with Chris there, and shortly after, they'd begin talking on the phone and texting each other all the time. Tara liked the attention of men. She openly flirted with several men and had even gone on a cruise with another male friend in December, shortly after she and Chris had become intimate. She had received sexually explicit photos from Chris's brother, and she even exchanged messages with Sherry's brother, in which he'd asked her to marry him. But she liked Chris now and wanted to marry him instead. When confronted with the information Tara had shared with the police, Chris would admit that the couple had begun seeing each other in the fall of 2008, six months before the murders. 
During the affair, Chris would fly Tara to meet him at different locations while he was working for Joyce Meyer. They had spent time together in Hawaii and several other places. They'd share his hotel room. He must have hid pretty well, since Chris would have been surrounded by his co-workers most of the time. Chris explained to police that he didn't consider their relationship to be an affair. He said that he believed an affair was when you're living with someone and you plan to get married. Behind this ridiculous statement was the officers and all of us rolling our eyes. Chris was questioned about whether he'd talked about divorce with Sherry, and he said, we, we talked about it a while back, about the possibility, maybe splitting up or something, but you know, it never happened. Instead, they went to counseling, and he said that their relationship had been going awesome recently. The conversation transitioned to finances, where Chris admitted that, yes, he made $100,000 a year, and Sherry didn't have to work, but she enjoys it, so I let her work. Those words, I let her work, tell you a lot about Chris. He then mentioned a trip. The family had planned to go to Disneyland, but what he didn't tell officers at the time was that he'd actually canceled it and booked a cruise to the Virgin Islands with Tara instead. The officers were on a roll. They'd asked Chris if he'd been 100% honest with them, and his response was, yeah, yeah, I did my best with it. But the information was still coming in, and a lot of it pointed toward Chris being guilty. They leaned on him harder, but he stuck with the story that Sherry was alive when he left home. At one point during the interrogation, the officers got up and left the room. Chris drank some water, then stood up, walked across the room, and nosed through one of the officers' notepads. The sheer audacity was stunning. The officer would later say that he accidentally forgot his notebook, but in the future, he'd leave it out on the table on purpose. When medical reports finally came in, they stated that Sherry, Garrett, and Gavin were all dead before 5 a.m. This was consistent with what the first paramedic thought when he arrived on the scene. When he found the lifeless bodies, he testified that they were all cold and stiff. This indicated that rigor mortis had set in, and in his experience, most bodies that have rigor mortis have been dead for a while. A supervisory investigator with the coroner's office entered the Coleman residence at 11 a.m. She took the core temperature of each victim's body, as well as the ambient temperature in the rooms. These also indicated that the time of death was earlier than Chris had indicated. The estimated time of death was between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m., at least an hour before Chris left for the gym. Based on hundreds of crime scene photos and autopsy photos and the autopsy report, police believed that Chris strangled Sherry first. While he was strangling her, some of her hair was tangled on the ligature cord he used. He then moved on to the boys. They believed this because some of Sherry's hair was found in the neck wounds on the boys. He used the same cord, wrapping it around each victim's neck for four to five minutes until their brains died. Then he tried to make it look like someone had broken into his house. Then he spray-painted the walls to divert attention away from him. Unfortunately, police didn't have enough evidence just yet. They began interviewing Chris's family and friends to try to find out what happened in the days and weeks before the murders. The Saturday before Chris's family was killed, Chris went to a hair salon in Columbia for a trim. 
Sherry joined him there after getting her passport picture taken for an upcoming mission trip. He was overheard asking her if she'd smiled pretty for her picture. While there, Sherry mentioned that the boys were on a camping trip, so the couple were going to go out on a date later that night. They were both really excited about it, and the hairstylist sat in the window and watched them as they left, thinking that they were such a cute couple. This observation was completely different from what Chris's neighbor told police happened just a couple weeks earlier. They'd gotten together with Chris and Terry for drinks. Chris seemed to be drinking more than he had in the past. Usually he stopped after one or two beers, but that night he was drinking from a big bottle of hard liquor. Sherry was really quiet, and she, too, was drinking more than usual. At one point, she asked for a beer, and Chris snapped at her. Get up off your ass and get it yourself, you lazy bitch. In the five years the neighbors had known each other and been friends, they had never heard Chris speak like that to Sherry before. The neighbors nudged each other and murmured that they needed to be getting home. The wake for Sherry and the boys was May 8th, and it took place at the Coleman's church. That same neighbor would attend. The police warned her not to let Chris know that she thought he was guilty. She hugged him and said, I'm sorry you lost Sherry. Across the room was a woman named Kathy LaPlante. Kathy was one of Sherry's closest friends. She'd been feeling uncomfortable lately because her boss was Joyce Myers, and Kathy had been instructed to pray for Chris, but she too felt like he was guilty. When police approached her, she told them that Sherry had told her if anything happened to her, Chris did it. She added that Sherry told her that she'd yelled at Chris during an argument saying, Chris, I'm never going to divorce you. I will not leave. What are you going to do? Kill me? I bet you're wondering if Sherry knew about the affair. Well, she did. She had wanted to save her marriage, even though she had found out that Chris was cheating on her. She had shown one of her best friends a picture of Tara, saying, Do you want to see the woman who's been sleeping with my husband? She said she'd confronted Chris. I imagine he threatened her and told her he'd lose his job if she told anyone. Sherry was tough. She was trying to fight for her marriage, but she was also scared. Sherry's neighbor, Vanessa, the one that thought Chris was guilty, had a son. Her son was very good friends with Garrett and Gavin. Garrett's birthday and her son's birthday were only a few days apart, and it had become tradition that the boys have a birthday sleepover. The night before Garrett and Gavin were murdered, they had asked Vanessa if they could sleep over to celebrate. Vanessa said, absolutely, you don't even have to ask. You go run home and tell your mom and dad to pack your clothes and book bags for school tomorrow. Garrett was so excited. He ran home, only four houses away, but five minutes later he returned with a sad look on his face. He told Vanessa, my dad said tonight's not a good night. We have to be home by 8.30. Vanessa suggested that they try again the following Saturday. The next morning, as she was preparing her son's birthday treats for school, she looked out her window and saw police everywhere. The Coleman's home was surrounded by crime scene tape. If Chris killed his family, he'd wanted them all dead. An overnight birthday would have been the perfect way to have Sherry alone. Shortly after the murder, as Mother's Day approached, Vanessa erected a small memorial for Sherry and the boys. She had bought some Mother's Day balloons and some footballs to place in the Coleman yard. 
Her son had made a Lego lady and two little Lego boys and wrote a note saying, You're in heaven with your mommy. She was watching from her yard as Chris picked up the entire memorial and tossed it into the trash. In the meantime, the Major Case Squad was sending DNA samples to the Illinois State Lab. The DNA under Sherry's fingernails was a partial profile. It could have been Chris's, but it could also belong to another male with a similar DNA pattern. There was no DNA found in the house that pointed conclusively toward a stranger. Chris's electronics were the next items to be searched, and what they found was incriminating. The email threats sent to Joyce Meyer, her son Danny, and to Chris were all sent from Chris's own laptop. They came from an email address that was destroychris at gmail.com, which he himself created. When studying the data on Chris's computer, they saw several other files that had the same misspelling of the word opportunities, just like in the first threatening email. They had enough now to arrest Chris. He was charged with three counts of first-degree murder. Police wanted to find the murder weapon, but the river where they suspected it had been dumped had been running fast and furious in May, but by August, the river level had finally gone down. Police could search underneath the bridge Chris had crossed twice that morning. They didn't find anything, but a week or so later, they did find a receipt from a hardware store where Chris had bought a bottle of apple red spray paint two months before the murders. His trial would begin in 2011. The officers who were first on the scene described what they saw, and the jury would see the crime scene photos. Sherry, who liked to sleep in the nude, lay naked face down on her bed, her head hanging off the edge and dark hair falling across her face. The officers would describe the texture of her skin as thick, like a dinosaur, not pliable, like it normally would be. The violence perpetrated on her was intimate and sustained. Joyce Myers would testify that she knew Chris since he was a little boy because his parents had come to her conferences. She knew that he had marital problems, but she said she didn't know anything about the affair until police told her. If she'd known about it, the affair definitely would have affected Chris's job. Then, Chris's affair partner, Tara, would testify. She explained that Chris had professed his love to her and that they communicated all the time. They'd even talked on May 4th, late into the evening, about their trip to Hawaii and their upcoming cruise. She testified that Chris promised to present Sherry with divorce papers the next day. She had given him an ultimatum weeks earlier. He needed to divorce her or they'd break up. The jury were then shown intimate photos of Chris and Tara together. The prosecution would show a note that had been saved in Chris's computer. It was saved under the name Tara. It listed her height, eye color, jean size, bra size, and panty sizes. Her favorite perfume, her favorite flowers, and even noted the birth date of her dog. Under Christmas was typed Promise Ring. Another entry was titled The Day Tara Changed My Life and had the date they met, and then a final entry read, Our daughter's name, Zoe Lynn Coleman. Chris's parents sat behind him. They were reactionless to the crime scene photos, and they looked away when jurors were shown intimate videos of Chris masturbating for Tara. 
One of Tara's friends testified that she and several others went out to dinner with Tara and Chris while they were in Florida. All of them thought Tara and Chris were a couple. They'd been seen out together several times and were open about their relationship while they were there. The prosecution then brought in a testing lab manager from the company that designs windows and doors. The exact type of windows and doors that were in the Coleman's basement. It contained a force entry resistance plate on the bottom, which meant that if someone tried to open the window in a forceful way, they'd do damage to it. The Coleman's window showed no damage, so there were no signs of it being forcefully opened. The evidence piled up against Chris. Handwriting experts and linguistic experts testified for the prosecution, stating that there were many similarities between Chris's writing style and the spray-painted words and threatening letters. If he wrote them, it meant he may have been planning his wife's and son's murders for at least six months. The defense brought in their own experts, who argued that the emails could have been written by someone else while using Chris's computer, and that the handwritten letters could have been written by someone else, too. The handwriting wasn't an exact match, after all. Of course, if Chris wrote them, he would try to disguise his handwriting. The defense's biggest argument was that most of the evidence was circumstantial. There wasn't any evidence at the crime scene that definitively linked Chris to the murders, but at the same time, he couldn't be ruled out. When it came time for the jury to deliberate, most observers hovered near the courtroom, expecting to be called back for a decision after a short time. But after a few hours, that turned into several hours, people left for dinner and evenings with their own families. The next day, they came back, lining the hallways, killing time. After 15 hours of deliberation, the verdict came down in the very last possible hour on May 5th, exactly two years after the boys were murdered. Chris Coleman was found guilty of first-degree murder for his loving wife and two boys. Justice was served. For quite a while, the jurors had been at odds, Five of them were afraid there might be reasonable a doubt until one of them picked up a picture of Tara and Chris. They flipped it over and noted the date on the back. The date was a full two months before Tara and Chris testified that their affair began. It was one month before the mysterious letters started showing up. While many people believed that Chris was enticed to kill his family because of a new love, obsession, and money, his parents stood by him the whole time. They believed that he was innocent. They explained that the red spray paint was used on a bullseye that Chris was making for the boys and that it had been sitting out on Gavin's dresser. It hadn't been bought for the purpose of leaving threatening messages to throw the police off. His mother believes that Tara bought the promise rings herself. She said that Chris wasn't romantic at all and couldn't believe that Tara wore her promise ring to court when she testified. His dad pointed out that a mercenary could have killed Sherry and his grandkids cleanly inside of an hour, and that Joyce Meyer had a lot of enemies. In Chris's time behind bars, he's become a preacher like his father, counseling other prisoners, and reading a steady stream of Christian books that his parents sent to him. In 2015, he appealed his prison term, but was unsuccessful. In 2018, He'd had an interview with Crime Watch Daily in which he maintained his innocence and said he was set up. 
He claimed he had two laptops. He traveled with one and left the other one at home or at work. It would have been easy for someone to use the one he wasn't currently using. Chris's father insisted on his son's innocence, saying that an affair was not a motive for murder. He said, and I quote, Tara was just meeting a need at the time that Sherry wasn't taken care of. I mean, every man has desires, and every man has to be respected. It's built into every man. If your wife doesn't respect you, then you're going to find respect somewhere else. He blathered on, saying that just for that short, brief time, she stepped back from doing her job as a wife. Well, I agree that an affair isn't a motive for murder. But it sounds like Father Coleman doesn't agree with the wedding vows he has likely led couples through over and over in his career. You know the ones, for better or worse. As I was getting ready to close up this episode, I happened to find one more article that I thought might be interesting to you guys, so I'm going to share a little bit of it with you. A former detective and author from Montana named John Cameron believes that Chris Coleman is innocent. Instead, he believes that a serial killer murdered the Coleman family and framed Chris as his final act in a decades-long murder spree that spanned the country. Let me just say that most people don't agree with this man, but I am going to tell you what he said. He believes that a serial killer named Ed Edwards was the real murderer. He also believes that Edwards is the killer in many high-profile cases, including John Benet Ramsey, the Black Dahlia, the Atlanta child murderers, the murder of Adam Walsh, and the Zodiac murders. Ed Edwards died in 2011 and was 78. He liked to taunt and play with his victims, according to Cameron. Cameron said the threatening letters that were found in the Coleman's mailboxes further cement his belief that Edwards killed the mother and two sons while Chris was at the gym. He theorized that Edwards sneaked into the Coleman house with the key he got, possibly at the church where Sherry worked as a receptionist. Then he stayed there until Chris left for his morning workout. He then killed Sherry and the boys. He cooled the bodies with an air duster, an aerosol can used to clean computer keyboards to make the bodies seem as if they had been dead for hours before Chris found them, just before 6 a.m. This author pointed to a number of reasons that the Colemans became a target for Edwards. He says the name of the woman who typed Edwards' own book, The Metamorphosis of a Criminal, was named Coleman. Edwards' real last name was Meyer, like Coleman's employer, Joyce Meyer. He also hated religious people. Edwards shared a last name with the then-Columbia police chief, Joe Edwards. He liked to kill on holidays. The Colemans were murdered on May 5, 2009, Cinco de Mayo, the Mexican Independence Day. Edwards targeted men who were cheating on their wives, and Chris was having an affair with Tara. I debated including that information because his theories seem a little too far-fetched for me. What I think is that Chris Coleman's story is a perfect illustration of an ultimate betrayal as he ended the lives of the three people who should have been able to trust him the most. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, the pictures that go along with this episode will be on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon. I'd love you to subscribe to the show if you haven't already, Ratings and reviews are always welcome as well as becoming a sponsor.
There are links to do all of those in the show description. I do have a couple of special thank yous today, and the first is to a new Patreon. Thank you to Jamie C. You are the absolute best. Thanks for coming on at the $5 level. I sure appreciate you. I'd also like to thank a couple people for writing reviews. Let me start with L.E. Gilmore via Apple Podcasts, who says, Great podcast, five stars. Keep up the great work, Sandy. I love that you cover stories that aren't super popular. Very educated, calm voice, and love the cute jokes. Thank you so much. Thank you all so much for listening. And to all of you, I wish you fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds.